everyone. This is episode 13 of the Activate Podcast with John Eldridge. My name is Eric English, and first off, thank you for spending some time with me today. John comes from Ransomed Heart, an organization located in Colorado, run alongside his wonderful wife, Stacy, and their very talented team. And I just want to take a moment to read the mission from their website so you can get just a snapshot of who they are. It says, Our hope is to change the face of Christianity. Our desires are to recover the treasure of the gospel, equip men to rescue others, transform the lives of men and women, provide ongoing nourishment, teach men and women to walk with God, show the way to new wineskins while living it ourselves. Now, I know that today's conversation is going to feel a lot different than those in the past. It's going to be challenging. And I know it's going to be uncomfortable at times for some of you, but my hope is that you would hang in there, give it a chance, because John has some great insights that I believe are very timely in the world in which we live and helping you better understand the meaning of life, what your why is, and how your story fits into the greater story of life. Here's our conversation. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm honored to be here, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, you're, you're someone that I've read and followed for uh, many years now, so it's uh, quite a pleasure to be able to share uh, some additional information with our audience. Uh, where I'd love to begin is your origin story. Um, it's something that oftentimes um, I don't think we hear about um, in your podcast. Uh, there, there's been mention of it in some of your books, but where did John come from to get to where he is today in Colorado with uh, Ransom Park? Um, obscurity. Nowhere. Just, just like most of the good stories. The... Uh, <clears throat> the character in this story. I um, grew up in Los Angeles. I, I was not raised within a faith context. Um, was raised in the drug culture uh, in LA in the 70s, kind of the hippie movement, and was a pretty wild kid. Uh, mm. Got kicked out of high school. Um, did a lot of different uh, experimental drugs, but what really began to take place in my life was a search for meaning and a search, just a hunger for truth. And I tried everything. I tried Eastern mysticism. I tried um, Native American arts uh, and nothing, nothing did it, nothing answered until I encountered Jesus Christ. And that was so um, life-changing for me in itself and, and um, came into a, a, a faith, a relationship uh, with him in that way and was looking, looking to be part of his project to heal human lives. Mm. Uh, really wanted to be about the restoration of people's lives. And so um, early in my career in the 80s, uh, my wife and I ran a theater company in L.A. 
Um, but it was like theater with a purpose. We, you know, the kinds of plays that it was live theater, the kind of plays we would do, we, we were really hoping to bring about change in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And um, we had a great run in that. We, we loved it. It was, it was a lot of fun, but um, it wasn't quite the bullseye for me. And um, I went back to school. I went to grad school to get a degree in counseling, became a therapist, and, and felt that that was more in my sweet spot. It gave me more direct access to people's stories, more direct access to where their specific questions were. And it was really, it was out of the combination of those two things. It was the theater background with story. And then it was um, therapy and in people's deep stuff that out of that grew the writing career. Then it was telling stories in order to help people understand their stories. Mm -hmm. And that's powerful. John, you touched on something that I'd like for you to talk a little bit more in depth on. It's something that has come up in my life and those around me, uh, young Christians and then Christians that have, uh, have walked with Jesus for a number of years and uh, really just around the, the search in your life for meaning and what led you to Christianity. What, what I've found as I've talked to um, a friend of mine here in the Orlando area, uh, he, he's on a, a search. You can see he's got a hunger for this meaning in life, but he's getting hung up on theology. He's getting hung up on the science behind uh, rather than the relationship aspect. So how important, I, I guess a couple of things there. Talk about the search for and the discovery of and, and what led you uh, to the Christian faith and, and how important uh, that search was for you. And then maybe how, other people that are on the same path right now, um, maybe some of the questions they should be asking themselves or, or those around them. Well, I, I think the first, um, it's such a good question, Eric, as I'm reflecting back on my own story. I think the first thing I would have to say is I wasn't looking for a religion. Um, I, this isn't theoretical. It wasn't for me. I knew that there, there were things within me that were not whole. I was not wholehearted. There was brokenness. Uh, I grew up in an alcoholic home. Uh, there was a lot of heartbreak, but there was also, I think, the realization of I, I'm not the virtuous person that I that I would like to think I am or present to the world. There's something in me that needs healing. It needs restoration. It needs being made whole. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that the unique, unique ability of Jesus Christ to heal humanity was a huge piece of what drew me there. But at the same time, I... Um, I knew that if I ever discovered what was true about life and what was true about the world, it wouldn't just be true in one category. It would be, it would be true across the arts, the sciences, culture, uh, nature. Like, um, 
and and so I was spared the um, divorce of faith and reason that many people have experienced in the postmodern era. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it was largely because some of the early people I read, very first guy I read was Francis Schaeffer. Uh, and he, he wrote at length trying to help people understand that, that there is no um, hostility between faith and reason. Um, and then I dove deeply into C.S. Lewis. And of course, you know, one of the most foremost um, intellectuals of the 20th century. And, and he was also trying to make the case that actually the intellectual case for faith is so much stronger than the intellectual case for unbelief, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't need to be embarrassed about or, or, or bifurcate or try and say, well, I, I am looking for meaning, but I kind of need to find it over here in, in a closet of my life whereas the rest of my life, you know, lives sort of divorced from that. I, I um, for me, I, I've, I found that the, the meaning um, is something that permeates the arts, the sciences, industry, commerce, economics, like um, if God is, and if he is the creator, and he cares very deeply about those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all part of the human project. And, and he cares about the cellist. He, 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 he cares about the banker. He, he cares about the architect and he cares about the nurse. I mean, the, their calling, their career, their place in the human project is of immense importance. And so I think, let, let me circle back around to the meaning thing for a moment because you you have to come to grips with is is there a story in which the chapters of my life make sense is is there i i think it was schaefer who said if we ever were to find the meaning of the world our lives would fit into it like the lost pages of a book like we would, we would discover that this is a, there's a continuity to it, that your, your story matters immensely, is critical to meaning in your life. You, you have to come to a conviction that your personal story matters immensely. And, and anyone who's serious about the search for meaning knows that it can't just be because you want it to be so. You know, that's magical thinking. It, it has to be because it fits within a larger context. And I would say it's a larger story. Um, if you'll notice, um, existence, reality presents itself to us in the shape of story. It comes to us in the shape of narrative. There's drama. There's, you know, tragedy and comedy. There's characters and, and dialogue. There's plot. Um, there's heroism, there's sacrifice. Reality comes to us in, in the shape of narrative. It comes in the shape of story. Uh, and this is enormously hopeful in helping you sort out this, the story that you're living and the story of your life and, and, and what, your, what your 
contribution is. I think that's absolutely critical to finding meaning in your life. What's, what, what's your why? What, what are you here for? What, what are you contributing to the earth or the human project? Mm, that's so powerful. And within that, uh, John, you know, when you talk about not being ashamed of, uh, being more bold about who we are in our faith, uh, one thing that I think everyone would be, be in agreement on is how authentic and vulnerable you are in, in so many scenarios in a, in a public way and how oftentimes we aren't bold enough in, in proclaiming our faith. And, and just a question for you, is this something that um, you knew early on, this giftedness to be completely transparent, or is this something that through your journey as a child or as you uh, came into the, the adulthood and a married life that you uncovered um, as a gift? No, it would, um, it, that's such a good question, Eric. I, it was something that had to be developed. I, um, in fact, I had, I was, so I, I was getting my uh, counseling degree and <clears throat> one of the requisites of the program that I was in, as common to many programs, is that you have to be in therapy yourself. Um, you can't, you can't go out and hang a shingle and attempt to enter into other people's stories if you haven't thought through your own and, and looked inside, you know, your own brokenness and your own motivations, etc. And, and I was having a conversation with a therapist friend one day, and we were talking about my acting career and, and my life in the theater. And, and he said, what do you do now that you don't act anymore? And, and honestly, my reaction was, my whole life feels like an act. I, I, I felt like I was constantly performing to what I felt the situation wanted me to be. Mm. And I, I didn't like that about myself. There was, there was a lack of integrity to that. And, and by that, I, I don't really mean a moral integrity, but what I mean is something more like a, a integrity of personhood. That, that the person that you meet at the party or the person that you meet at the, at the business meeting is the same person you would meet if we were on a camping trip together. Like integrity of personhood, integrity of presence was something that I realized I lacked. And, and frankly, most of the people around me lacked. And, and it was something that I craved very deeply that um, yeah, I, I think another word I would use for that is wholeheartedness, that, that wherever I am, who I am is the same thing. Uh, and interestingly, I was uh, just having lunch a couple days ago uh, with some young guys, and they're looking into the Christian faith. They're not quite sure what they think about it. And one of them asked me, they said, hey, you know, so what is it that you're looking for in a church? And I said immediately this, that, that what is being presented on stage is the exact same thing that you'll find off stage. You, you need to make sure that there is an integrity 
there that it's not, you know, one thing on Sunday and something completely else on Tuesday. You know, you need, you need people who are not um, faking it. Um, and, and again, I don't even necessarily mean morally, you know, that's not that they're having, you know, six affairs on the side. It, it's just that there is a trueness to the person and, and therefore you can trust it. You see that it's one of the most remarkable qualities actually of Jesus, it, his trueness of being. I mean, the man, you know, one moment the crowds are cheering, the next minute they're trying to crucify him. You know, people love him and then they hate him. People try and seduce him and use him. And, and then the next moment, you know, they're kissing up to him. And in all of that, he is exactly the same person. He's, he's just not putting on a show or swapping, you know, hats or masks to fit the moment. And that, anyway, to, to your question, that was something that I crave very much. It's something I realized I didn't have. And I, I began to pursue it, um, and and in doing so, I realized that authenticity and vulnerability, vulnerability, and and not faking it was absolutely critical to that. So that yes, that's become a very core value of who we are and and what we do. That's so so good, John. Uh, it it falls in line, and I don't. It, refresh my memory but you uh, your team just put out a series of podcasts that weren't necessarily recorded recently but they were pulled from archives and the subject was on envy and going off of what you just said here what came to mind is uh, people's ability to put forth that particular image with the instant picture or post that they put on Facebook. And because of that, I've, I've examined, you know, some of the usages of social media for that reason. So I, I say that because the speed of information, social media, the news and everything else today, is this something that you think that we battle more today than we did perhaps 20, 25 years ago? Oh, there's no question. There's absolutely no question. It's just, you know, the available, simply your smartphone. You know, you have the, you have more data presented to you every week than would crash a laptop. I mean, the, the amount of image and, and news and information and fascinating and entertaining and video and, you know, that, that comes at us. I think is assaultive on the human soul. I don't think human souls were meant to contend with that sort of deluge. Um, and, and, then, and then there's, you know, we're kind of at a fork in the road. And, and let me just point out the two different lines of conversation. Um, Nicholas Carr wrote a fascinating book called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Uh, he almost won the Pulitzer Prize for it. Um, and, and that line of conversation is in the direction of, you know, when you are flitting and flickering and swiping from one thing to another, it's literally changing the structure of your, of your brain and making it very difficult for you to pay attention 
to things that are longer than a short post. <clears throat> now, the other fork in the road here is the issue you raised around or referred to around envy. Um, you know, the research is, is, you know, massive. It's conclusive. It's rolling in all the time that the envy and depression and anxiety increase proportionate to your intake and use of social media. It's undeniable. Well, and I can attest to that, John, because in my line of work, uh, social media is necessary primarily for the clients that we serve. But one thing that I can pinpoint on uh, exactly what you said around anxiety was not removing my Facebook presence, but removing it off my cell phone has lessened the amount of anxiety I had maybe six months or a year ago. Just that one change because of exactly what you're saying. Wow, that's so good. What a relief. So going, helping people out. Um, one, one thing, and we'll talk about this briefly because it's a gem that I discovered from one of the many books that you authored. And I think it was published in 2009, Fathered by God. Is that correct? Was that published? Yeah. In yep. Okay. So about 10 years ago, and, and I just discovered this book. Uh, and what the direction I want to go with this is you've outlined different stages. You outlined different stages of manhood in this book in this book, the journey of life uh, of a man from a, from a boy all the way to the end of life as a sage. Um, so do you want to briefly talk about or just share those stages? And then I've got some other things I want to ask you around that. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, this, this really grew out of my work um, as a therapist with men, um, working with men of all ages. And I, you know, what I encountered more and more and more was that some of the core issues, you, you could have different presenting questions. They might be relationships, uh, you know, divorce, fear of relationships, trying to find the right person, etc. cetera. Uh, it it might have been gender um, confusion issues. It, it, it might have been something uh, like a gambling addiction and, and, but what I began to realize was that the common, the common thread was fatherlessness. Or, or to be more specific, the absence of someone in their life to guide them through what we would call a process of initiation. And, and you know, you read Robert Bly, you read, you know, other uh, secular authors on this, that, you know, for centuries, the world took the process of initiating boys into men, cultures took that very, very seriously. Uh, even down to ritual seriousness, where there were, you know, uh, there were mores and standards and set programs around which we did that. You know, and nowadays, you know, you get your driver's license, you you become, you know, legal uh, age to serve in the armed forces, you know, you become legal drinking age, and that's it. There, there's, we don't have a process by which boys are initiated into a wholehearted masculinity. 
And so as I began to kind of unpack that, look back through the literature on it, look into the scriptures, uh, look into stories, again, looking at, at the great stories of the ages, you find the exact same thing. You find this, there are these stages, and, and what I describe them in my book are, uh, you have the stage of beloved son. Uh, boy needs to know he's loved. He needs to know he's the apple of his father's eye. He needs to know he's growing up in a safe world. Talk more about that. And then in around the age of adolescence, um, things really begin to change. And you move from, you know, Legos and Star Wars and, you know, kind of the sweetness of the boyhood era into something new. And I call it the cowboy stage. Uh, you see it in David's life, for example, King David. Um, but my goodness, you can look at all of the, you know, you look at the man from Snowy River or the recent uh, World War II tank movie, Fury. Any of the coming-of-age stories, there's this shift from the innocence of boyhood into what I would call the cowboy stage, and it's the time of um, adventure, uh, venturing out. It's also the time of hard work. It's lessons in the field, uh, and that would, I would put that in the teenage years. Boy, boy needs that. And then... Around the age of, uh, you know, 18, 19, there's another shift that really begins to take place, and I call it the warrior stage. And it's interesting that this is the age at which uh, we do send young men to war, and uh, there, there's something that emerges in the developing young man's heart. He needs a mission. He needs a cause. He needs something worth fighting for. It's uh, the cowboy stage is a ball, and, and it's, you know, it's testing through adventure and taking risks, and it's the motorcycles and, and all that. But, <laughs> but he, he needs a mission. He, he, he needs a higher call, something he can serve. And I would put this in the 20s is really the development of the warrior stage. I put it before the lover stage, um, although I think they're really overlapped quite a bit. But it would be really good if the young man could develop some sense of the warrior within him before he gets in a serious relationship, because he's going to discover very quickly it's going to take an enormous amount of courage to navigate that relationship. And he's going to need to fight for, not against, but for the relationship. So there's the warrior stage, mission, purpose, cause, sacrifice, resiliency, and then overlapping that is the lover stage. Um, and, and by that, I don't just mean love, um, romantic love, although I think that this is when that really begins. You know, most guys uh, get married in their 20s or 30s, um, as a rule, generally. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I mean here is it's the awakening of the heart. Uh, there's, there is almost like what you would call a poetic awakening. You know, he, he discovers the love of the cello, for example, or he, he discovers the German poet Rilke and absolutely falls in love with his writings, or, you know, he, he becomes a naturalist. And just in the natural world is a source of unending joy for him because of the beauty. It's the awakening of the heart. It's not enough to simply be a, a warrior. You, you have to have the awakened heart to be a wholehearted man and the awakened heart is what prepares him to love 
a woman uh, and, and, to, and to enjoy romance and know how to do it and do it well. Um, and so you've got, you know, beloved son, cowboy, warrior, lover, and, and these stages prepare you, I think in the 40s, um, generally, is when we enter into the age of king, uh, warrior, lover, king. Because the king stage is where the character of the man and his wholeheartedness has been shaped enough to be entrusted with power and money and influence. Mm -hmm. and, and those are that's the great question of, of, the, of, of human culture, by the way. That's the great question of, of the earth is when can you entrust men with power? And the answer is only after they've been initiated only once their character is ready for it. And most of the heartache of the world, you just look at it and it's bad kings, you know, whether it's the Harvey Weinsteins or, or you know, examples of men in positions of power who do not have the character to wield that power on behalf of others. Um, so the, the stage of the king is a very beautiful stage. It's It's a stage where, you know, he might, he might become the professor and his classroom is his kingdom, or he might become a physician and his practice is his kingdom, or he might become a coach and his team is his kingdom, or, you know, he becomes a, an entrepreneur, he starts a company, you know, what have you. But he has a kingdom uh, and the stage of the king uh, is a beautiful stage. It's a very demanding stage, requires a lot of his character, requires a lot of wisdom and selflessness. Uh, and I think the king stage goes, you know, from early 40s for a couple decades, you know, late 50s into your 60s. But at some point, this beautiful, beautiful climax enters in and he becomes the sage. He becomes the man who has a life of wisdom and a life of experiences where he is able to mentor others. He's the elder at the gates. He's the, the silver-haired guy who doesn't need to be in control anymore. He, he doesn't have to have the steering wheel. Uh, uh, he lets other younger guys step up and shine and take their swing, but where his gift is and where his influence is now is he, he is the the wise one, the, the, the advocate, the counselor, the sage, uh, speaking into uh, both the lives of individuals, but hopefully of communities. You know, he serves on the school board. He runs for council. He's, you know, a rector or a, or a deacon at his church. He's, uh, you know, different functions like that where people are really leaning into his wisdom. So those would be the six stages. Beloved son, cowboy, warrior, lover, leading up to king, which then kind of all climaxes in the sage. Thanks for that, John. And, and if you don't mind, I would love to pull out, just so you know, I highlighted more in this book than I think I ever did because of exactly what you said in the beginning. So many men uh, not by the intentionality or really the fault of my father, I didn't experience most of the things uh, that were discussed in each one of the stages. And what I, what I wanted to talk about today a little bit more was the warrior stage. And, and I just want to read briefly 
an excerpt from here. Um, How does God raise the warrior in a man? Hardship. I think this is where we have most misinterpreted what God is up to in our lives. As long as we are committed to the path of least resistance to making our lives comfortable, trial and tribulation will feel unkind. What better way to train a warrior than by putting a man in a situation after situation where he must fight? That's so, so good. And the reason I highlighted that, John, is I, I really believe that it does two things. It fits right into discussion we were having prior to this about social media and, and the amount of information coming at us. And the one thing that this book throughout the warrior chapter really uncovered for me was the role that we play alongside God as a warrior, how it's not a passive, Oh God, you have all of this. I don't have to take any part, but how we're called to put on the full armor each day because of the world in which we live and and how evil this world is. So that was very powerful for me. So you've got the warrior stage, but as a believer, we're called to fight that same battle with God. Absolutely. I think that's central to the human project. I think that mankind, the human race, both men and women, were created to be God's intimate allies in his war against evil. And, and that can express itself in a thousand different ways, but um, that piece about it not being about comfort, you, you have to understand the world, you know, Wordsworth's phrase, the world is too much with us. Right? Mm. The world is too much with us. Um, we, the world you live in right now, dear ones, is entirely focused at comfort. The ability, you know, you can adjust your your cruise, your temperature, your volume from your steering wheel, for heaven's sakes. You don't even have to move your hand. Like the the the, you can do your banking from your phone. You you can you can turn the lights on in your house if you forgot to from your phone. You you know the the entire system of of human culture right now is is built around the acceleration of comfort. How do, how do we, how do we you know, hyper-engineer our lives? But what you have to understand is that human souls are not shaped through comfort. Uh, now, I did comfort, okay? I, I enjoy my leather couch, and I like going to the beach, okay? So I'm not, I'm not a, an aesthetic in that sense, but, or a stoic even. Uh, but comfort does not shape human character. And comfort especially does not shape young men into men. And, and that, that part that you read about misinterpreting our lives. So when God you know, steps in with difficulty and setback and trial, our main experience is abandonment. God, you have abandoned me. You don't love me. You're not fair. You're not kind. You're not good. You're not coming through when what we are missing is the opportunity to rise up as warrior and learn how to handle adversity. Mm. You know, devices, comforts, the things that, that 
you know, we have so much access to in this country has also pulled us out of one of the main themes that carries throughout this book, John, and that's nature. Nature is one of the things that, that you bring up into this story of, of life, this journey that we're on that you have to experience, right? I mean, you, you can't, you can't experience these different levels of manhood without being in the wild, being in the woods, hiking, fishing. Uh, so how has that played to your journey and how important is that for us as, as parents to intentionally put our kids into that environment to, to not only experience these stages of life, but the fullness of God. Oh yeah. Oh, this is huge, Eric, because we're, we're talking about human souls and, and what are the conditions under which human souls thrive? That, that was Aristotle's basic question. What's the conditions under which human souls thrive? And, and here's the, here's you, when God creates the human race, he doesn't put us at the mall. He, he doesn't put us in front of computer screens all day. He puts us in this wild, beautiful, gorgeous world. And, and the uh, World Health Organization released a study a number of years ago that we now spend 93% of our life indoors. 93% of your life indoors. Like, you can't have a childhood if 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 it is spent primarily indoors. We, we are meant to interact with nature. Nature teaches, nature soothes, nature heals. Nature is the habitat for human souls. And so you know, what we've done is we've wrapped ourselves in plastic wrap and, and literally cut ourselves off from the nature that could heal us. And never before, you know, more needed than now. Because most of us, you know, live lives that are so filled with technology and, and artificial environments. You know, you, you spend 93% of your life indoors. You, your weather is regulated. The, the sounds that you hear are sounds of technology, not the songs of birds, etc. You know, most of the substances you touch are plastic, etc., etc. So more than ever, recovering time outdoors. And, and I'm not saying you have to become, you know, a big wall climber or, or a double black diamond skier, or, you know, you, you've got to learn to sail. All those things are wonderful. But I'm just simply talking about get outside. Like, take a walk. What's the weather doing today? Like, begin to experience the the world that your soul was made for. And, and you asked about parents. This is absolutely critical to child development. Uh, there's an excellent book out right now, Richard Loeb's book called The Last Child in the Woods. Um, and it, it's a highly researched book on what he calls nature deficit disorder and, and literally depriving ourselves of, of just natural experiences. Um, I do, love, I do love the outdoors, but, but I'm not making this case because I'm an outdoorsman. I'm making case because all the research is corroborating it. You know, a 20-minute walk in, in, in the woods reduces your cortisol levels. I mean, on and on it goes. Like, nature is extraordinarily healing. And when we are in a world that's bombarding us with information, 
news stories of the trauma of every village on the planet, you have to have time in nature to restore your soul to be able to handle life on this planet right now. It's, it's uh, you know, most people have vitamin D deficiencies and then they wonder why they go into depression, right? Like, well, you know, we used to say sunshine makes me so happy. Well, it literally does. <laughs> it, it, you, you know, your body needs exposure to the elements. And this is a fascinating thing, by the way. Children need to play in the dirt in order to develop some of the immunities that they need. Mm -hmm. And if they are deprived that, they, they will have weakened immune systems. So, you know, it's funny that we have to have research to convince us that you need to let kids play in the mud, right? Yeah. But if you need the research, it's there, folks. <laughs> All seriousness, one thing, uh, John, that I don't know if overwhelming, is the right word, but uh, knowing the best way, I think would be the right way to say it, knowing the best way to uh, live intentionally as a, uh, raise our kids intentionally with this in mind. And I say that because I'd love for you to share, because I found it so interesting, some of the things you did with your boys, and you did reference this, you know, we have a we have an older son and a younger daughter, so this can apply to daughters as well. But speaking specifically for dads out there, what are, what are some of the things we can begin to do as dads and what are some of the things that we can maybe do with other groups of dads that are uh, like-minded, that are other believers, uh, they're, we're friends together? How can we begin to initiate our boys, prepare our boys? Our, our son's going to be 12 this year, and I've already – began to pray about this. We've had some conversations, him and I, but you know, I want to be able to do this. And what, what were some of the things, because you know, I found interesting some of the things you did on an annual basis with your boys out in the wild, and you know, how can we implement this into our lives? Well, um, would love to talk about that. Um, so every little boy has two fundamental questions, two fundamental needs. Um, the beloved son, he needs to know he is profoundly loved. He needs to know that he is the apple of his father's eye, that his father delights in him. And every man is fueled by a fundamental question, do I have what it takes? Uh, and the search for validations, the search for the answer to that question fuels what men do and don't do or refuse to do every day. So when you're looking at parenting, when you're looking at raising boys, I want to instill in my sons and my daughters, but right now we're talking about sons, the sense that I love being with you. Um, you get my time. You get my attention. I love goofing off together. I it doesn't have to be productive. It doesn't have to be a teachable moment. He just learns belovedness, that I am adored. And then with that, see that belovedness creates the safe environment because what, what the initiation of boys into men essentially involves is facing challenges and overcoming them in a way that builds a settled strength 
in the soul of the growing boy that he has what it takes. Now, it's very important to hear it. Words of affirmation are very, very important, but it's also very important that he experiences it for himself. You know, so, <clears throat> and this is all, this is all age appropriate, right? So, you know, the, the little tiny guy gets to climb the stairs, right? As he's learning to crawl, you don't keep pulling him off the stairs and saying, no, no, honey, that's not safe. Yeah, he gets to climb the stairs. He needs to learn to climb. And, and, and it, it's age appropriate and it's protected, but, you know, then, then he gets to push the little scooter around, you know, and then he gets to take the scooter down the sidewalk. And mom's freaking out because mom wants to wrap him in bubble wrap, right? <laughs> but, but the important thing is he's beginning to face a growing set of challenges that are building into him resiliency and courage, especially. He needs to be encouraged to take risks. And the whole point being is that with a father or a mother or a caring grandparent or a good coach or teacher, someone is there to help him succeed and to help him interpret when he doesn't succeed, right? Because failure is not devastating if it is interpreted. Um, but most of the time for men, there was no one there to interpret the failure. And so the failure was the sentence, you don't have what it takes. And so he doesn't ever try it again. You know, he doesn't ask the girl out or he doesn't pursue the job or he doesn't go for graduate school uh, because the failure taught him the wrong lesson. <clears throat> so um, what would I do with my boys? Um, lo lots of play. Lots of imaginary games. Um, stories were very, very important. Children learn through stories. So, um, you know, telling stories, reading stories, you know, the Narnia, the Redwall series, those kinds of things, building the heroic imagination in them. And then, uh, you know, there's just a couple categories like tools. You know, letting the young boy discover that he can use tools. Here, help daddy fix the broken chair. And you get to hold the screwdriver and pull this screw out. Or you get to use the hammer and pound this nail. You're, 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 you're expressing to him, I believe in you. I trust you with these things. And then that grows. And, <clears throat> you know, when our son's... When, you know, we live in the affluent West, kids get cars when they're 16 and it's just madness. I just think that that's, you know, one more level of comfort. The boys should not get a BMW when he's 16. Um, instead, what we would do is when they were 17, when they're 16, they need the car, they get to use the family van, which is an enormous humbling experience that they have to pull up you know, to the burger house or whatever in mom's van. But that's right. You don't get, you don't get the sports car, you know, until you, 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 you've got a lot of growing up to do before you get that. And when they were 17, we would find an old junker and we would fix it up together. <clears throat> and I remember handing my son, he wanted to turn a Volkswagen into a Baja bug, uh, which those of you in like Southern California and Arizona will remember the Baja bug. You kind of take old VWs and turn them into something that's almost more like a dune buggy. Uh, and I remember handing him the Sawzall and telling him to cut off the front end of the car. 
And, and there was just this moment in his face of like, what? First off, I get to do this? This is so freaking cool. And secondly, this look on me like, you understand, like, this is irreversible. The moment I take this Sawzall to the front of the car, it, you know, there's no putting it back. And that kind of risk and, and testing and trial, growing them up um, into young adulthood where, you know, they've, they've faced so many challenges by that point. They're really not overwhelmed by things like going off to college or joining the service or, you know, doing a year in the Peace Corps. I mean, that kind of thing. They're just so ready for it because they've been, they've been formed through this. You are absolutely loved and you have what it takes. So why? Why is this book? It was important 10 years ago. But, John, why is it important, so important now for our society? Well, the crisis of fatherlessness, um, you know, we're now, <clears throat> we're now two generations into the divorce culture. And so um, most young men do not grow up with an engaged father who himself is a wholehearted man, able to lead his son through initiation. Uh, that's that's becoming more common. I'm actually very glad to report there there is a movement. There is God is doing phenomenal things out of the news and and down in the grassroots. But there is this phenomenal movement going on of men who want to be good dads and are therefore taking their own wholeheartedness seriously. So so I, I do want to report there's there's wonderful trends. But for the most part. Most of us who are adults and most of the young men growing up right now don't have anyone there to initiate them. And so we need, you know, a book like this provides the, the great hope of the human race is that God can provide for you what you didn't get. Um, he's not a backup plan, by the way. God, God's not an option to the human experience. It's like, mm. you know, well, if you, you have a great life or if you don't have a great life, well, there's God. Mm. Uh, he's not plan B. He's always, meant to, he's always meant to play a central role in the development of human personality and character and human hearts and souls and joy and happiness and love and meaning. Uh, and I don't think those things can actually be sustained without him. Uh, but, but the hope that fathered by God, obviously you hear it in the title, the hope is that God can be our father. He wants to be our father. He presents himself as father. Uh, so, so that, you know, we're not screwed if, if our dad's in jail or if we don't know our dad, you know, we, or if our dad's not a good man. Uh, it's that's not the end of the story that you have a father who loves you and is deeply committed to your life and 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 let's learn to partner with him in what he's up to and one of the fun questions by the way um, you know whether you're 16 or 80 one of the fun questions is just to ask the father father what are we up to 
what are we working on right now? What, what are you doing in my life? What, uh, he's very kind. He doesn't overwhelm us with 100 lessons. There's usually one or two that he's kind of working on right now. And, and, and you might be very surprised what his answer is. He might say to you, I'm teaching you to play mm-hmm. because you never learned to play. And, and you're very successful, but your soul is not wholehearted because you don't know how to enjoy yourself. Or I'm, you know, I'm teaching you to handle rejection. Uh, or I'm, you know, I'm calling you up now to be a king, and I, I want to give you more influence in, in your world. I want to increase your podcast. I want to, you know. So it's just a fun thing to ask him, Father, what are we working on right now? What are we doing? I love it. Such a, such a good question. And uh, for those, no matter what phase you're at, such a good book to start with. And what I'll do, John, for the listeners is I'll place a link to this book in the show notes for people that are interested in purchasing or looking more into that. So they have that resource. Uh, Question. What, what excites you right now, John, is there a particular project or an upcoming event that you're excited about? I said that there is this untold story going on. Most of most of the um, most of the news right now is pretty bad news. If you follow the news, uh, and 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 there is you know a great deal of trauma uh, taking place in the world. But the great untold story is, I am so excited about the healing of human hearts and lives that I see taking place every day that I receive reports from, you know, I, I just to kind of orient your listeners. So I, I grew out of my therapeutic practice uh, into, uh, you know, writing and podcasts and films and conferences. And so we interact with, you know, tens of thousands of people every year. And, and the stories that we are hearing of redemption, uh, of healed marriages, of, of women being genuinely restored from abuse, of, of men getting out of sexual addictions. I just want to say there's this incredible work going on down at the grassroots level, out of the headlines, that God, um, God is up to healing people. And I love it. And I'm super excited about it. I love being a part of it in every way I can. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And one of the events, John, uh, Wild at Heart, that one's in October. Is that one coming up again in October? Yeah, right. So we do four-day retreats for women called Captivating. We do four-day retreats for men called Wild at Heart. Uh, And then we do advanced levels of those. You can come, after you come through those programs, you can come to something called the Advanced for Women, the Advanced for Men. We do other things as well. and, and um, those are very, very healing experiences. Uh, but the good news is those resources are also available online. So if you can't get to Colorado, you can still, you can still get the, the content and get the healing experience uh, no matter where you are in the world. Very good. Yes, we'll, do a, we'll put a link up uh, for those, well, to your website where they can dive in and find that information from your great team in Colorado. John, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think the 
what we talked about today is very, very timely. I think there's a lot of hope, but there's a lot of work left to do. So my prayer is that people would leave our conversation, uh, whether they're a believer for a long time or in the discovery phase, that they would be encouraged um, and that they would reach out to people close to them to help, help them kind of discover who they are and what their why is in their story. Um, where can, where can the listeners stop by and say, say hi, John, where are you most active? Well, what social media channel or is it email? What's the best way for people to kind of either connect with you or just follow what you're doing? Uh, so I'm the least social media person out there, which is a little ironic because I'm a public person, but um, we do have a Facebook page that our team runs, John Eldridge, um, Ransomed Heart on Facebook. Um, we have a website, Ransomed Heart Ministries, or you can just Google John Eldridge and you'll quickly find the website. And we have a podcast, a weekly podcast that we do as well. We do these live events. Um, so there's some different ways to tie into what we're doing. Excellent. Okay. And we'll put those links up as well again, John. Thank you for your time and continue to do God's work. We're blessed to have you and your team here with us. Yeah, thanks, Eric. I, um, I really appreciate the hour together. It just flew by, and uh, I pray that your work in the world continues to grow and flourish. Thank you so much, John. Hey, it's Eric again. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's conversation with John Eldridge. My hope is that you were encouraged, perhaps moved, by some of the things that we discussed today. And as always, I will include links to John's social media, his website, and other ways that you'll be able to stay in touch with John along the way. And as always, I would be super grateful if you would subscribe to and share the Activate podcast on whatever podcast platform you use. 